Welcome to the Evolutionary Parenting Podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Castles, PhD. A common view today is that when we are born, we are somehow born on even footing when it comes to the effects of how we are raised and what this means for us developmentally. We believe this despite the emergence of epigenetic theories that tell us otherwise. But the problem becomes how to actually study this given the myriad variables that are at play. This week I had the pleasure of talking to a leader in this field, Dr. Amanda Detmer, and her work studying rhesus macaques to explore this very issue of not only intergenerational effects, but how our early life experiences impact so many facets of our lives. Now we also got talking about anti-animal research views, if that's something that you might be interested in. I hope you will enjoy this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. I am so excited to have with me today Dr. Amanda Detmer. She is an associate research scientist at the Yale Child Study Center. She's a comparative psychologist and behavioral neuroscientist with over 20 years of experience studying non-human primate models of child health and development. Dr. Detmer's research program examines the impact of early life factors and individual differences on health across the lifespan. For this research, she employs multidisciplinary approaches, including ethology, neuroendocrinology, immunology, and epigenetics. Dr. Detmer also maintains an active interest in education research, and a second burgeoning line of research is studying how a different type of early life experience, the classroom environment, impacts long-term stress and social and academic outcomes in children. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Well, I've already seen, I've got our second interview. I'll have to have you back to talk about the classroom environment once you've got that one. That's a whole other life experience, especially in COVID. That is, yeah, right? Just So much to talk about there. (laughs) I know. But today we're focusing on your first line of research, which is the health and development, early life experiences and long-term health in non-human primates. So before we get into those detailed questions, how on earth did you get into studying this? What led you down a path of of Uh, early life factors and health? I, you know, it was somewhat circuitous, but the one thing that has remained constant for my entire life is I adore animals. I have known since about seventh grade that I wanted to work with or study animals in some capacity. And um, in fact, my very first animal-based research was as a high school student with honeybees uh, at UC Riverside, and they still have a a dear place in my heart. Uh, And that's really where I learned scientific methods and how they can be applied to the study of animals. Um, But as an undergraduate at University of Washington, I was sitting in my requisite animal behavior class. I was a a zoology major. And the professor, I think it was early in in the course, put up a picture of a baby monkey and said, this you know, this is my real work, this work at Baby Monkeys, I just moonlight as a professor. And I, my jaw dropped and I said, we have monkeys on campus. Oh my God, we have baby monkeys on campus. So I immediately went to his office hours. I don't remember anything else he talked about that day. And I said, I don't care if I have to scoop poop, like sign me up, what, how can I do it? And he said, well, you know, oh, and, and what he had described was that University of Washington was and still is home to the nation's only 24-hour staffed infant primate research laboratory. So I said, please sign me up, I will do whatever. He said, well, you don't have to scoop poop, you can actually <laughs> you can actually <laughs> conduct research for credit towards your degree. And I said, what? 
That's amazing. So I started uh, there um, and, you know, kind of um, ironically, I was also simultaneously interviewing at the bat lab at UW and I really wanted to work with the bats. The, the psychology department had a bat colony on the top oh of the tall building. And I was like really yearning and leaning towards bats. And they said, oh, so sorry. We just want someone with a little more experience. And I was heartbroken until the, the primate lab said, we'll take you and we'll give you credit for your degree. And so <laughs> I started doing student-based research there and I never went back. And from the very earliest days as an undergrad, all the way through my graduate research, uh, postdoctoral training till now, I've just really been focused on studying young primates, um, both as you know, a model for child development, but also just because of their own virtue. They're just fascinating animals in their own right, which I'm so excited to talk about today. <laughs> and, um, and, and I've been fascinated with the study of these youngsters across their lifespan and what kinds of early experiences shape their outcomes. That's amazing. I feel like you're describing your early life much like my daughter. I feel like she may have a future somewhat similar to yours. Yeah. She is literally sitting outside as we speak trying yeah. to feed honeybees. Yes. Um, that have Fantastic. come in. She <laughs> she's created her own little feeders with all the colors so that they'll like identify it as flowers and come in. So I love it, that. You could tell it, her she can use, this is what I did, a, a tiny little brush to paint dots on their backs so she can identify them when they come back <laughs> to the feeding ah, source. Oh, interesting. Uh -huh. yeah. That would be, yes. I'm not sure. I think there are neighbor's honeybees. I don't know that he wants them painted, but, um, you know, if they're coming oh, into our yard, so maybe. he has his own hive. Well, yes. you know, maybe she can team up with him and do a little, a little uh, observational research. <laughs> exactly. Oh no, it's she would love that. So that is there. But okay, so as you've talked about already, you don't look at humans. So we talk about your work looking at you know early life experiences and later health development. Instead, you study rhesus macaques. Is that correct? That's right. Uh, to date, I have never done any research whatsoever with a single human. <laughs> Which is going to be interesting because that is, I think, going to be surprising for many people <laughs> that here studying early life development and later outcomes. So what what is the reasoning behind studying mm -hmm. macaques and using a non-human primate model for early human development and how is it similar to human development to our model in terms of using a human model of yeah. human development uh, those are great questions and i get them a lot you know why not just look at what you want to look at in humans and children and there are really so many reasons why studying models like macaques rhesus macaques in particular uh, are are beneficial and why they can answer questions about humans that actually studying humans themselves can't um, so first I'll go into similarities and rationale, you know, for studying primates versus humans. So um, fun fact is that behind humans, rhesus macaques are the second most widely distributed primate in the whole world. So already, geographically speaking, we're talking about a lot of similarity here. And, you know, when we think about the evolution of human migration, uh, I think it's also important for folks to consider that rhesus macaques in their evolutionary history had to make a treacherous journey over the Himalaya mountains. And it really takes hardy species like humans and rhesus macaques to be able to survive journeys like that and then to thrive in new environments. 
And in fact, rhesus macaques are kind of considered the, the weed species of monkeys because they can literally survive anywhere. And they're a species of least concern according to the IUCN Red List. Um, and, uh, you know, this adaptability is really demonstrated by the fact that here in the United States, we have seven national primate centers located everywhere from Washington state down to uh, Louisiana and Georgia. And there was formerly one in New England and Wisconsin. They're all over the country, one in Texas. So they really can live anywhere. Um, but more than that, genetically, behaviorally, physiologically, macaques and humans are so similar. We really, uh, we, we're really so close to them evolutionarily. We share approximately 93% of the same DNA. Behaviorally, so in humans, you know, there's these attachment criteria. And I'm sure you've talked about this on previous episodes of your podcast, the uh, attachment theory and Mary Ainsworth's tests of attachment. And in fact, rhesus macaques satisfy the requirement for attachment criteria, making them exceptional models for this study. And we'll talk about the effects of disrupting that attachment later. Um, but uh, truly, when I talked about one of the things, one of the reasons that monkeys like these are valuable for study is because in humans, we cannot easily or readily determine causality. And what I mean by that is when we're trying to determine, does a particular early life experience cause a particular outcome later in life, we can't randomly assign human children to experience neglect or not. It's simply not allowed in our society. With monkeys, we have the ability to be able to do that, to assign variable early life experiences and holding everything else constant. So monkeys in research facilities are extremely well cared for. They have equitable access to food, shelter, and healthcare, right? <laughs> Which humans humans do have, not. Actually. And so we, we can really isolate the effect of a variable early life experience on whatever health outcome of interest. And that's just so we can answer questions of causality that we just can't do in humans. And I know, you know, you wrote in your paper, too, about the concern about ethical considerations around them. Yes. And I think it's fair to state that, I mean, as you said yourself, you love animals. You are not doing yeah. something because you're out trying to harm them. And there is oversight on there's really strong oversight over these studies as well. Is there not? There absolutely is. And, you know, I just have, I, I feel like we could do a whole episode on regulatory oversight of animals and research. Um, and, but, you know, I, in over 20 years of working with monkeys in captive laboratory settings, I've never met a single person amongst hundreds who work in these facilities that does not love the animals they work with. Yeah. We all adore them. Okay. And it's also true that of all of all of the ways in which humans quote unquote use animals or rely upon animals, research with animals is the only one that requires formal ethical justification of the use of animal prior to the onset of the activity. So if we think about using animals for clothing or food production or farm work or even as pets or as zoo animals, in none of these cases is ethical justification required to be submitted and then approved only with research. And yet, I think it might be safe to say that it's quite possible that the research component has the greatest capacity to save lives, both human and animal. So there is a whole bunch of oversight from the very local level to the federal level. And at the very local level, as an individual, I as a scientist need to come up with 
hypothesis-based research questions first and foremost, right? I can't just say, and this is something that's, uh, I think, very commonly perpetuated, uh, or at least not well understood by the public, but it is perpetuated by individuals and organizations who are opposed to use of animals in research, is that the conception that scientists just decide one day, I want to use an animal uh, just for fun, just to see what happens. <laughs> Nothing could be further from the truth. So I need to come up with a hypothesis-based research question to answer. And I also need to submit a formal proposal justifying the use of animals in which I explicitly state, this is why I must use this animal species and this number of animals and why they will answer the question and nothing else can, including humans. And I've already explained why some of those reasons are. So that's yeah. local. And then the university or institution where you're conducting the research has an animal care and use committee that provides regulatory oversight at the local level. And then there are a number of federal laws here in the US that also govern the welfare and the treatment um, of animals in research capacities. So it's really very well regulated, all ultimately with the goal of balancing, you know, benefits and risks. So benefits to humans and to animals in conducting research with animals, uh, you know, counterbalanced with the potential risk for harm to the animals, which, again, in these proposals for research must be documented how you're going to mitigate those. And I think it's important just, you know, when I read your research, I think about the fact that, you know, especially with early life experience, you aren't doing something that isn't happening regularly to humans on, like we talk about early life adversity. This is something that is very common and something we do want to change. So you talk about yeah. that benefit versus risk kind of ratio there in that the capacity to understand early life experience and potentially mitigate these factors for other for a mass number of humans because let's be honest it's yes there's a lot struggling with adverse early life experiences as we'll we'll get to here but um i do see that benefit there it's not thinking that we're doing something just because we don't want to expose a human to it it's right. humans are exposed to it on a regular basis yeah that is true and you know some folks have said to me well just because humans are May, may experience these types of things doesn't give you the right to impose that on animals. And that is a, uh, you know, that's their opinion. <laughs> um, however, uh, for the reasons I mentioned previously, if we really want to pinpoint exactly how, you know, the mechanisms by which adverse early experiences lead to greater risk for poor health outcomes in adolescents and adults, we need to be able to systematically study this. And that's just not possible in humans. And so to me, studying a small amount of monkeys on each year, really it's very small uh, compared to the hundreds and thousands of children each year who are living in conditions that don't support their, their ultimate growth and success, I think is worth the the potential risk, especially because our animals are so very well cared for. And just, I, I know we need to move on, but it is such, yeah. you're right, we could have a whole conversation <laughs> on just this issue here. Which but we could if you like, <laughs> at some uh, other time. I think, you know, the point is, does it give you the right to do it? It sounds like you're doing it for fun. And that's obviously not the case. Of course, no one has the right to do it just because you feel like doing it that day that's and right. it happens to kids. There is a, a greater reasoning behind it and, and a greater 
good to hopefully come from it that we can apply to, again, as you said, not only humans, but I think animals as well. You think about animals in zoos being, you know, your work and understanding that early life experience can yeah. shift how they're cared for. Exactly. And I'm really glad you mentioned that because it used to be long ago, uh, maybe not so long ago, that uh, infant primates were separated from their mothers in zoos. Um, and you know, for the purpose of exhibiting to the public or or for whatever. And that really is not done anymore because in large part of the studies with monkeys showing that disrupting this attachment process is really detrimental. So it's, yeah, beneficial so to both. Let's get to this attachment mm -hmm. process and early yes. life experience because, you know, you've looked at so many outcomes and we're only going to be able to talk about a few today because yeah. <laughs> you've done a lot. But um, <clears throat> let's start, though, by talking about this different early life experience in rearing. So what yeah. is it that you are studying in these monkeys and how do we translate that to our human experience of either rearing or mm -hmm. even just in general? Sure. Um, great question. So. The work that we're talking about now is work that I did with uh, colleagues and mentors at the National Institutes of Health, um, specifically in the National Institute of Child Health and Human Development. And the PI of that lab retired in 2018. And so the lab closed down in 2018. But for 35 years, the lab existed to study uh, generational, uh, I'm sorry, lifespan. Let me start over. Fourth, <laughs> clap, clap. <laughs> Um, for 35 years, that lab existed in order to study individual differences in uh, lifelong health trajectories and developmental trajectories and how genetics and environmental influences contribute to those outcomes. And so one way, and this was in Steve Sumi's lab at NIH, and one way, the primary way that we, uh, we really tried to tease apart early life experiences was by randomly assigning half of the infants born in each year, uh, and rhesus monkeys are seasonal breeders, so they give birth every spring to one infant per year, and half the infants would be randomly assigned to be typically reared with their mothers in social groups of about eight to 10 adult females, there was an adult male in there, and some other youngsters of the same age. The other half were randomly assigned at birth to go up to our neonatal nursery which is literally upstairs from where the typically reared monkeys lived. And there they were reared by human caregivers in a highly enriched and stimulating environment. They were bottle fed um, with a, like a, a Similac uh, formula and uh, reared in that way with continual access to other infants, but without the access to adult figures with which they could form a secure attachment. So although they were given exceptional uh, housing and food and healthcare, they they were not able to form these secure attachments. And they would live in these different environments for the first eight months of life. And then, as I said, they were seasonal breeders in order to make room for the next year's cohort. At about eight months, we would relocate the nursery reared and the typically reared infants to a new location at the facility and mix them all together. And from there until uh, adulthood, they live together under identical conditions so that really anything we observed after the first eight months of life could be directly attributed to different experiences in the first eight months of life. Okay. And so when we think about that with humans, what would be, I mean, are we looking at just say a human with an insecure attachment or mm. is it even deeper than that? Do we need to look at a child without 
yeah. attachment. A, you know, obviously humans can't be raised on their own with no no adult whatsoever. Right. So there's which, exactly which these monkeys are not raised on their own either. It's not like they're just, yeah. you know, put out in the wild and said, Good luck. Um no, I think, you know, while we may not yet know precisely what conditions um, these early rearing experiences mimic in humans, we have very good ideas now based on the last several decades of research. So when you think about children who have either disrupted attachments in infancy or inability to form secure attachments, period. So this may be um, children whose mothers die in childbirth, uh, maybe children who, I don't know, are separated at the border from their parents children whose families experience a natural disaster and caregivers are suddenly removed, uh, or children who for many reasons may be reared in an orphanage type setting. So there are really lots of types of early experiences that this kind of, um, I guess, uh, you know, experimental manipulation can model. Okay. And so it's probably not fair to say it's just mimicking someone who has their primary caregiver, but for whom they have not formed a secure attachment, they may have. That's, that's correct. And, you know, even um, in the human research world, you know, th there is some struggle with defining what do we mean by uh, adverse early experience, because there are so many different types. For example, there's a difference between neglect and maltreatment. Yeah. Um, and so, and it's also important to know that, which has been shown in human and non-human primates, infants can form secure attachments and children can form secure attachments to a lot of different types of caregivers, yeah. daycare providers, teachers, grandmothers, aunties, you know, so it's not just the mother. So yes, you're right. It's not fair to say that we would be mimicking it by nursery rearing the effect of having a mother present without, uh, but, but there just is not an attachment there. It's really lack of an attachment to a, uh, a, a responsive caregiver. Mm -hmm. Okay. Which is good, I think, for people to know In because general. you don't want anyone concerned, you know, there's such fear amongst parents about attachment in general, and they worry about yeah. their child's ability to attach to them, or if they've struggled with postnatal depression or anything like that, yeah. all of those things that can impact. And I want them to feel secure that no, this is not the same as, you know, the absence of a particular person that's, with whom they can attach. That's correct. Yes. And also okay. what we've shown in our research over the past decades is that young primates, human and non-human, are actually incredibly resilient. And if given opportunities to form attachments, to other, uh, particularly adult caregivers, they will do so and can in fact thrive. So that's also important to note. So just total question on this, do yeah. some of those nursery reared ones end up attaching to the humans that feed them? Oh, or do you have sure. to be very careful yes. to? For sure. Um, and you know, some infants in the nursery, you know, this is anecdotally, um, because maybe we have data somewhere that could answer this question, but I could tell you anecdotally over many years, you know, there are some infants who tend, tended to form very strong attachments to single particular caregivers. And we had several on our staff who would provide care for and also conduct the developmental assessments. Uh, they had their one favorite and that was it. Um, and so you're <laughs> right. Like the researchers absolutely need to be careful to not form a bias for having their particular favorite monkey. Um, so it's something we continually 
try to check and keep track of. <laughs> oh, interesting. I could see I'd be so horrible at that job. I'd be like, I'm just going to love them all the time. It's <laughs> pretty tough, but they're all adorable. So it does make it a little easier to, I guess, uh, <laughs> love them all equally. <laughs> and not play favorites, right? Yeah. Exactly. All right. So let's start in terms of these outcomes, because we have an idea as to what you, you've done. And one of the really important ones that struck me when I was reading your research was on these intergenerational effects. Yeah. Um, because, you know, too often, I think especially in our culture, we kind of ignore intergenerational trauma um, mm -hmm. in a lot of capacities with a lot of marginalized communities. And we kind of treat it as if every generation gets to start new, right? So yes. you, yeah, you've been born. No, no, no. It doesn't matter what happened to mom or grandma. Or anyone. <laughs> yeah, that's in the past. Let it go. And of course, I mean, all the studies of epigenetics tells us so much that that's just the wrong mentality, but obviously it still pervades in our culture. Yeah. So you have research on this, though, with these monkeys on the intergenerational effects of these early rearing experiences. So can you tell us generally what you guys did for this, how you assessed it and what you you found? Sure. Yes. So this is really exciting work. Um, we recently published a working paper in the National Bureau of Economic Research. And, and this, uh, this project really is still ongoing. This is the first in what I hope is a series of papers, but it's in collaboration with a research group of Professor James Heckman, who is an economics Nobel laureate at the University of Chicago. And, and he has dedicated his career to studying, um, you know, studying the, I guess, economic benefits of investing in the early years for children. Um, but I think he became well aware of the limitations in determining causality in humans, like I mentioned before. So um, also economists have brilliant, what I call voodoo magic, <laughs> ways in running uh, super sophisticated statistical methods, which are far above my ability <laughs> on complex data sets um, to be able to answer complex questions and, and look at um, long-term benefits of, of early experiences. So what we did together is we collated our archival data from these monkeys at NIH and we looked at approximately 650 mother-infant pairs across multiple generations. And the multiple generations here you can think of uh, as first we looked at was the mother herself, mother reared or nursery reared, and then was her offspring, mother reared or nursery reared. So when you think of it that way, there really are kind of three generations we're encompassing because we're encompassing the grandparent who may have reared the mother and then the mother who may or may not have reared her infant. Okay. And so we really were able to look at four different groups. A mom who was mother reared, who raised her own infant is one. A mom who was mother reared, who had an infant go to the nursery is two, right? And then a mom who was reared in the nursery, but reared her own infant is three. And a mom who was reared in the nursery, whose infant also was reared in the nursery. Four different groups, right? That allow us to compare the differences in outcomes between uh, the different intergenerational groups, right? From grandparent environment to infant. And uh, this allowed us to learn more than just the benefit of secure attachment in a single generation, say for the mother's uh, benefit, but really what was her, her offspring's benefit. And so we looked at a few outcomes um, on the infants themselves whose mothers were mother reared or nursery reared. Okay, so we looked at a few outcomes in these infant monkeys whose mothers themselves were either reared by a mother or reared in a nursery. One was uh, 
the amount of time that the monkeys spent in good health. So these monkeys had quarterly mandated veterinary exams, health, health exams. And um, we simply looked at the percentage of monkeys that had some kind of health problem requiring extra medical attention. Uh, and that was in adolescence from one to three years old, which is equivalent to about, you know, teenagers and humans. And we also look later in life in a, at adulthood uh, in monkeys, equivalent to adulthood in humans, looking at their social status. Now, similar to humans, social status in rhesus monkeys confers different benefits depending where you are in the hierarchy. So similar to humans, high-ranking monkeys have, uh, you know, better access to more desirable food, to more desirable social partners, even to things like shade on a hot day. <laughs> I will tell you, it's the high ranking monkeys who boot the lower ranking monkeys out to cool off in the shade. Um, and so those are a couple of the outcomes we looked at across the lifespan of the um, offspring generation. And what we found is a significant positive effect for sustained secure attachment across generations. What I mean by this is if an infant was mother reared, and that mother herself was reared by her mother, then there was a, a higher frequency of time spent in good health. So 7% more time spent in good health. And these monkeys relative social rank was higher than other groups. So this really indicates to us that there are long-term across a single lifespan and also intergenerational impacts of secure attachments. So did you find this for, was there a significant effect for the infants alone who were mother reared, but not when their mother was mother reared? So the nursery reared mother to the mother reared infant. Was yes. it a lesser effect? Like, is it a dose dependent effect here or is um, it? Yeah. So the, the positive benefits were essentially compounded for the mother reared, mother reared combination mm -hmm. yeah. more so than the <laughs> nursery reared, mother reared, right? Okay. So yes, if an infant uh, across generations was exposed to mother rearing versus its mother had been nursery reared, then it it realized much greater health benefits. Okay. So, which is really important because again, we go to this idea in our culture of like, no, 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 you start anew, but really yeah. you're not starting anew. And that's, that's right. not something. Now, one of the findings that you mentioned here that was also really interesting to me at least was that the mother reared um, mother reared, I guess, mothers, because it was their generation, had earlier fertility. Yes. Why? Yeah. yeah. What is that so about? That is That was an interesting find to us. Um, and part of this is um, explained a little bit by the fact that rhesus monkeys, I said, are, you know, are seasonal breeders. So every late summer to early fall, they breed, which means every spring to summer, they're get, having babies. And you know, our best guess, but we still need to test this, is that oh, per perhaps owing to their higher social rank, mother-reared animals have kind of first access to breeding opportunities. And it may be, that may be playing into the fact that they have babies born in, um, you know, under conditions that are more optimal for infant survival. Um, although that was not the outcome you specifically talked about, but I think the fertility uh, rate was really how many babies did they have? Um, you know, they just may be having greater access to breeding partners. Yes, yeah, which would make sense actually from that social status yeah, ranking, right? Exactly. That if they are higher in social status and this really, that social status, just to, to talk a bit about it, because 
generally there's a more fixed pattern of social status amongst. I mean, it does vary. Yes, but- yeah. In rhesus monkey society, in general, uh, social hierarchy is really pretty fixed. And it, although it does vary somewhat, particularly for middle ranking monkeys, the high and low monkeys are generally pretty stable, but it is normal, although rare to have upheavals like overthrows and what we would call coups and things like that. <laughs> which we've also studied. Really? Okay, <laughs> yes. well, that's a whole other topic that we'll have yeah. to get to there. So what is it about um, the social status, this effect of social status, this improved social status? What is it about the mother rearing that you think is leading mm-hmm. to the ability? Because you think about, you know, it, it's not like they inherited money, which is part of yeah. our, you know, human comparison of social status. It's just this, you know, intergenerational wealth. They don't get that. So what is it about that rearing that seems to affect their ability to rise socially? Right. And, you know, I really appreciate you making that point about inheritance, (laughs) because again, this (laughs) underscores really the value of studying a primate model, because as I mentioned, you know, at the beginning, monkeys have at least equal access to resources. Now, mm-hmm. who get who actually grabs the resource first may, is different depending on social status. So that is part of it. Higher ranking monkeys, we know, have greater access to desirable social partners. But that doesn't really answer your question. What we think is going on is that the infants who were mother reared and whose mothers were mother reared had imparted upon them more um, effective social skills by virtue of being around other monkeys in a a, a kind of a social family environment, but also by virtue of of having the secure attachment to which the infant could return in times of distress or in, in other times of need. And in fact, we have additional evidence supporting this because in some of our other work, looking particularly at dominance rank and how young monkeys acquire their dominance rank, we have found that it's not genetically inherited. And so if monkeys are reared in a nursery, right, but then placed in an environment that they are familiar with, with peers they are familiar with, they actually can come out on the top relative to other mother-reared monkeys. So it it is very much environmental. And what we think is happening in the case of the mother-reared infants is that through the course of their rearing in those first eight months or so, they are learning social skills that put them at better social positioning. Which makes sense from that. And, you know, that raises a question for me that I hadn't even thought of in, until now, actually, even reading all the work I did, is this idea of the social environment um, of not just the mothers, right, mm-hmm. being it's a crucial point, but this social world that they're in is different. Yes. I know the others have the peers around them, so it's not like they're missing peer relationships, but right. that capacity to be in touch with you know, uh, what did you say, eight or nine other adult monkeys in there as well, and the ability to learn and adapt from from others, too. That's right. That's right. And in fact, you know, our our work into social rank acquisition has looked exactly at this kind of what is the environmental complexity? uh, And by that, we mean sort of the social complexity, because we had not only these mother rear monkeys in groups of eight to 10 adult females, and, you know, maybe five other infants. That's pretty complex. But side by side, another cohort that we haven't even had a chance to talk about, but I would love to, uh, given more time, we had a five-acre field station with about 100 free-roaming monkeys. And this field station troop was comprised of multi-generational families. 
grandmothers or great grandmothers, their adult daughters, their offspring. Very, uh, you know, very complex social environment, even relative to those mother reared environments. And we find that there are, you know, different outcomes in terms of social rank attainment um, based on the those two different early mother rearing experiences. Okay. Wow, it's yeah. I, I mean, I think it just goes to show too. Like, I, I guess this goes. My next question really is, you know, you find that these intergenerational effects seem to be parenting as the driving force for this um, in terms of conferring some mm -hmm. early life advantages, I think is the fair. I don't yeah. know how, whether we can talk about advantage or adversity for those who don't have it is kind of a... We might say disadvantage. Advantage. Yeah. yeah. Advantage versus the, disadvantage. Advantage, yeah. yeah. Um, but early life adversity can happen with loving parents yes. and everything in things. So what in terms of humans, as we take this relationship, and now it makes me think about these other, you know, larger complex social structures that they have, how do we, how do we extrapolate this to parents in terms of trying to create these optimal early life advantages, these early life yeah. experiences for our kids that we can take from this kind of research? That's right. And that is such an important question. And I think it's questions like that, that are the driving force for me every day to conduct the research that I do, which is ultimately, what can we learn by studying these animals that will improve the lives of children across their lifespans and for their own children? Um, so, you know, I think there's there's a lot we can take away. Just a couple of highlights. One speaks to the um, the social milieu, I suppose, that an infant is reared in. And I think there are some implications there, considering our increasingly digital world and uh, the digital environment, especially now in COVID. I mean, I have some school-age kids who have spent their entire school years on the computer. Um, and, you know, that it's just really important to continue stimulating our children socially and to give them exposure not only to uh, kids their own age but give them lots of opportunity to interact with other adults with with adolescents with other humans at multiple points across the lifespan so that you know they can begin to learn what does what what do effective interactions look like across the lifespan and how do different people respond in different ways so I think that's one takeaway. And I, I just think even bigger than that, something I come back to a lot, especially recently is, you know, presumably, as, as our research has suggested, the driving force behind these benefits, intergenerational benefits, is a secure attachment. And Jim Heckman's work has also, you know, in line with his work that has shown that investing in children in the first five years has huge economic benefits down the road. I really think if we combine these two ideas and make investments that allow for secure attachments to form as early as possible and for those secure attachments to extend as long as possible. So let's remember that adults even need secure attachments, right? Yeah. Children need them. Teenagers need them. There are so many important developmental periods in a human's life, uh, which having secure parents or partners to go to is, is vitally important. So if we, as a society, can use this research to leverage policies that make it possible for secure attachments to form from the first days of life, 
then we will be doing right by our children and right by our families. And it's just, um, it's really upsetting me a lot of times <laughs> to consider all the ways in which we don't prioritize our children because unlike the monkeys I study, not every family has equitable access to healthcare or to shelter or to healthy food. <laughs> and imagine if we took care of those three basic problems, how much easier would it be for parents who are disadvantaged because of societal you know, reasons, <laughs> um, <laughs> how much easier it would be for them to devote time to their children and to, to maintaining, establishing and maintaining secure attachments instead of making forced choices between having to go work another job just to pay the rent. Yeah, it's no. And I it's one of those things. I'm up in Canada and we have a long way to go too. there is a lot that needs to shift here. We have inequity. We have imbalances. Yeah. But I will say that I every time my husband and I read another fundraiser for someone's health care problem, yes. I the just fund me for. Yeah, I, I can't see medical expense. Yeah, yeah. I just, it mind boggles us because it is not something that we really contend with here. And yeah. is our healthcare system perfect? No, there's a lot of myths about it down in the US that, you know, <laughs> seem to be perpetuated in order to make it seem like we're all running into a shack and someone's, you know, just, I don't know what's happening or we can't get it. But it's, um, you know, I often share with Americans that seem surprised, I had to have a echocardiogram done recently. Mm -hmm. And, you know, everyone's like, Oh, you know, you're not going to be able to get it. We hear your guys's wait list is whatever. And I'm like, well, my doctor called it in. And a week and a half later, I got a phone call and I was in within two weeks and yeah. had it done. And I paid a total of whatever the gas was to get to yes, the place to get exactly. it tested. That was my, you know, I'm parking, I had to pay for parking too. But mm -hmm. that was I didn't pay a cent outside of that. I mean, obviously our taxes go towards it, but you know, our, our tax rate isn't that different than the US mm -hmm. either. So I'm not mm -hmm. entirely sure what you guys are doing with all your money, but um Neither are many of us. <laughs> <laughs> but that is the stuff I know. And I think about that. I think about maternity leave or paternity oh, leave, whether it's parental leave. On that. <laughs> is, um, again, you know, ways to build these attachments and support families during mm -hmm. this time. And, you know, but another one that may not be quite as policy related, but I'd love to hear your take on it, given your work with these complex social structures. But there was an article a while, and I can't even remember, I'm, I'm, horrible with names because it was a journal article, but about how the nuclear family was kind of the worst thing to happen to child development. Um, oh, that as opposed to extended, to um, it was in, I think it was in the Atlantic and it was how okay. we moved away and it's harmed families, really. The lack of the oh, intergenerational you know, this is ringing having a bell. All this, Yeah. Right. It's, and I'd be really curious your take on that, thinking about these monkeys, complex environments with yeah. multiple people of different ages, the experience of learning from so many yeah. others. Yeah. And presumably, I don't know if you see it in the monkeys, but the reduction of burden on childcare on the, <laughs> I guess in monkeys, it's the mother so, more so than mother or father, but I'm I have a funny anecdote about the second part, and then I'll get to that <laughs> on nuclear family bit. Yeah. In our field station that I mentioned with the five acres of free roaming monkeys, 
Um, in one year, right, um, it was birthing season, and um, this monkey had given birth every single year from 2000 to 2013. First of all, I can't even imagine. <laughs> okay, but the point there is that she was the last one to give birth, and so, and she had, I don't know, five, six, or seven adult uh, daughters in the field with her who had their own babies, but not every single one that year had a baby. So her baby was the last one to be born. And keep in mind that typical weaning age for rhesus monkeys is, you know, on the early, early, early end, like maybe about four months, typically around six months. Hers was born in late July that year, mid-July. First one to wean. Why? <laughs> because yes. I kept watching her. Literally, she would carry the infant for the minimal distance possible on her ventrum and then like plunk it down next to one of her adult daughters uh, and walk away and be like, peace out. I am going to take care of myself. <laughs> you know, I need some me time. And these older, much older sisters would just take right over. And it was, um, yeah. it was pretty amazing to see. So yes, I think the care is definitely reduced. There's just, just so don't have their individuals. Team. Yeah, maybe don't have 13 <laughs> or ensure you have the resources to have 13 like 13, she did. Yeah, true. <laughs> um, but no, there's definitely um, something to be said for larger family structures, which I think are becoming more rare in America. Um, but, you know, and I haven't read that article that you talked about, but I do remember seeing it come across my feed and it's probably in one of the 30 tabs I have open that I still have to read because um, it caught my eye. But I think it's it's important to note that it is not true that everywhere in America we have quote unquote been reduced to the nuclear family because there are communities everywhere across the U.S. that are predominantly non-white, right? Where um, there there still do exist large family units comprised of grandmothers and aunts and cousins and friends, family friends, um, who engage more in this kind of collective care model. And so I without having read the article, I would have to go and look like, I just wonder how much of that is maybe more specific to the suburban type of family, right? And that's not to deny the fact that I think, you know, families are um, moving away from where they grew up to raise their own children. And I mean, I'm a good example. My kids' grandparents don't live very close by. um, And they, we've, never had them super close by. So I do envy people that have aunts and grandparents nearby. Um, yes. But that said, do I think it's harmful? I don't know. Um, you know, there's the ideal and then there's reality and a nuclear family is certainly better than no family. Um, <laughs> yes. Whatever, however you define your family to be, maybe it's not any blood relatives, but um, so while there might be additional benefits for children growing up in these larger complex, you know, I guess, mini societies, which might be their extended families. I, I don't think that necessarily means that children in nuclear families are suffering. Yeah. I just wonder, you know, and I, I we raise in a nuclear family here too, yeah. right? This is yeah, what we have. We same. are luckily close to one grandparent who spends a lot of time with the kids, which is lovely. Yeah, so great. we have that benefit. But I do always feel like I look at my kids and I'm like, I wish we had another family or two living. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be extended family. I think in my mind, I'm like, I would just love it if, you know, we just plopped another family nearby. You and know, then the kids that's go a really great point. That. Yeah. And yeah. that itself is a great point that speaks again to the 
ability of children to form attachments to multiple sources, not just their own biological parents. Um, but, you know, you would need nurturing people around your children. And we, when we moved to the New Haven area in 2018, we were fortunate to land in a neighborhood where, um, you know, we're not sitting right on top of each other, physically speaking, but there are plenty of families nearby. And so we have kind of formed our village, <laughs> right, of yeah. three or four other close families, and we can just send our kids over to play. And, and so they have practice interacting with other adults and teenagers, and it's really great. And I think it, it, you know, having grown up myself in a fairly rural area, and definitely my extended family was not close by, um, I'm really glad that my kids have that opportunity. Yeah. No. And I think that's something that parents can take because we tend to forget we may not have control over our immediate family, but yeah. we can create bonds with families that are close by and family friends and create kind of our own network yes. of yeah. support as it goes, which I think is exactly. really hearing these complex communication, like complex societies of the monkeys just yeah. makes me think of this. And yes. in a sense, you almost create some of them yourselves by mixing these you know, infants from nursery yeah. rear to other together, they're almost forming yeah. their own little complex society there for a while. They do. They have to absolutely learn to create a new social group uh, and they develop their own new social hierarchy. It does turn out that the mother reared juveniles tend um, outrank the nursery reared ones and that persists to adulthood, but they still groom each other. As adults, they still play together as juveniles and they do, they form their own, you know, their own social networks. Yeah. Um, very quick question before I get to the, the next question here about the rest of your work outside this, but yeah. I don't know when you say they wean around six months, what is the human yeah. equivalent oh, of that? For Thank you. That's a great thing. I should have said at the <laughs> outset. So in, in the question about advantages to studying monkeys. So Rhesus monkeys develop approximately four times faster than humans, right? So that six-month age is approximate to a, about a two-year-old in humans, which um, in traditional cultures at breastfeed, two is quite common just to be weaning um, yes. or even to still be breastfeeding. But that is another advantage to studying primates is there we can get much more detailed information by studying them repeatedly mm -hmm. at a much faster scale. Okay. Because yeah, I know some people, it's always drives me bonkers, but I hear people saying, well, they wean at six months. So humans can wean oh, yeah. at six months. And I'm like, yeah. I'm pretty certain it's not the same. That no, no. Because <laughs> they're having no. babies, not at, you know. Every year. Yeah. Orangutans, uh, I think wean around seven years. Yeah. Years. Yeah. So. Years. Let's They're like my kids, at them, you know, that's like, what, oh, well. <laughs> I apparently gave birth to orangutans. Yeah. That's, you know. <laughs> uh, oh. There we go. So, okay. So we have this intergenerational effect. Now, as I said, you have looked at, I mean, just from my looking at what I've read of yours, you've looked at outcomes like to do with early life experience in the microbiome, mm -hmm. cognitive outcomes, social status, HPA access activity, neuro plus neuro, pardon me, neuropsychiatric disorders, and even more. So, yeah. I mean, like I said, we could go into all of them, but we don't have time. So what I would like to ask you, though, out of all of those bits of research you've done, what findings most surprised you? Because oh, I, I know I one, have a few huh? that surprised me. Well, no, pick more than one, but start yeah. with one. Which were some that surprised you? Gosh, this is, t I, I think one of the more surprising findings was our study on the microbiome. Uh, so for that study, we looked at uh, gut microbiome diversity 
across the first six months of life in mother reared and nursery reared monkeys. And remember, this is equivalent to through toddlerhood in humans. And I fully hypothesized and predicted that given the fact that infant uh, nursery reared infants were formula fed and did not have access to adults and the variety of other monkeys like we've talked about, that across the entire six months, their gut microbiome profiles would differ from mother-reared monkeys, but that's not what we found. <laughs> so we measured the microbiome diversity and also abundances of certain types of bacteria at day, uh, days 14, 30, 90, and 180, if I am recalling correctly. <laughs> I have to pull up that paper again. Um, and you know, we found the largest differences at day 90, but at six months of age, which is kind of when I expected to see the greatest differences, we found no differences. And I said, what is going on? Well, so we thought about it and went back to, you know, kind of the protocols uh, in the lab. And we found what was happening at that time was between 90 days, three to six months of age, is when the nursery monkeys were um, getting more access to the types of food and uh, like, so the regular high protein monkey chow, right? Mm -hmm. And also extra foraging in terms of seeds and nuts and fruits that the mother reared monkeys from birth were having exposure to. So because the infants reared with their mothers lived in these large pens, social environments, mm -hmm. the entire social group would get daily feedings and foraging. And so infants from birth are getting exposed to this. So we think that one reason is the nurse-reared infant's diet was actually becoming more similar to the mother-reared infant's diet as they got older. Um, and then also that in that same time window, the mother-reared monkeys were venturing off of their mothers more and interacting with other infants more. So their social interactions also became more similar. Right, the nursery reared monkeys only had access to other infants, and you know, although mother reared monkeys had exposure to others, um, a lot of their day is spent in play with other infants at this time point. So that's what we think is going on there. But that was one of the more surprising ones. That was one that surprised me too, actually. If you hadn't brought it up, I was going to. <laughs> um, but just thinking about that, though, what do you think that means longer term health wise? Because we think we talk a lot about the microbiome these yes. days as conferring these kind of longer term health effects. Um, yes. But is it because it evens out at 180 days? Are we saying that there really isn't a a benefit to the microbiome. Right. Obviously, we're not talking about the other benefits, but to the microbiome for mm -hmm. those mother reared monkeys. No, I don't necessarily think that's um, what we can conclude, partially because we need to follow out, follow these monkeys out longer than six months. Remember, they're still in their different rearing environments for about two more months, and then they have all of adolescence and adulthood. So we don't know if these early rearing experiences might, uh, differences might show up again later. For example, you know, uh, other research with other animal models has shown that um, stressors can affect the composition of the gut microbiome. So it's possible that the gut microbiome that is laid down in infancy, uh, you know, in mother-reared and nursery-reared monkeys, that's different in infancy, and that may have later downstream effects on uh, monkey stress response later in life. So we just don't know. So no, I don't think there's no benefit. Mm -hmm. Conversely, I don't think it's necessarily true either that there is a, uh, I guess, a 
disadvantage to the gut microbiome in the particular condition in which our monkeys were reared. I mentioned they're very enriched and stimulated and they have still lots of social interactions. I would hope that one thing that can be taken away is, you know, there's a whole lot of talk um, about breast is best. And this is coming from a mom who breastfed both babies for at least three years, okay? So I breastfed both my children for a long time. Nevertheless, we can't look, I'm looking out the street right now, at people biking and walking by, um, and I can't tell who was breastfed, right? <laughs> so I, I hope that mothers get some consolation from the fact that although there may be differences early on that are in the gut microbiome that are partially due to diet, because we could not simply narrow in on diet, there were other factors, it's not going to be the end all be all. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think that's always really important. I have a um, an episode with a woman who talked about early health, and she says the same thing about, you know, yes, we may find these effects of breastfeeding, but it's not something, you know, if you can't, you don't want to, whatever, there's exactly. lots of other things You're you can do. You're not supported because you don't have a turn Exactly. <laughs> that is, yeah. I know you've got intergenerational trauma that affects the likelihood of even being able to, you weren't exposed to it. You don't know That's what right. it looks like. And, Amazing. you know, exactly. And I, I say the same, I'm not kidding when I said I gave birth to orangutans because <laughs> my daughter weaned at six or seven mm -hmm. and my son is five and still going. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it's, I'm not sure what's happening there, but uh, I yep. feel like it's. <laughs> and like, I think, I think what it drives home is what we talked about early on is what appears to be most important is a healthy, secure social environment, regardless of what that infant drinks. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and that in fact was some of the first research that my academic grandfather, Harry Harlow, showed uh, was that infants need secure bonds. And yeah. that's what matters. That is exactly. And that is, I had Abby throwing on the badass breastfeeder. And as yeah. she put it, she's like, first off, it's all the problems are all capitalism. Because that <laughs> is all the bad policy is being yeah. made in the name of capitalism. And she goes, but she doesn't care. You know, here's someone who's a huge breastfeeding advocate. But she's like, I don't yeah. care if you breastfeed. That's not my like. It's right. what I care about is that if you want to, you're able to. Exactly. And that yes. is what it has to come And to. I will add on to that as my close colleague, Katie Hind, who's a lactational biologist, um, her research and her, you know, her mantra, which I also have now adopted by working with her is if you want to breastfeed, you should be fully supported and be able to do so. If you are not going to breastfeed for all the reasons we've mentioned, then we need to make infant formula mimic as closely as possible what is in yes. human breast milk. Yes. Because <laughs> um, Which... we measure cortisol in uh, monkey milk and human milk, and it doesn't even exist in formula. So yeah, Ex no, exactly. There's so much that we can take, which is why I hate how little funding and stuff goes towards breastfeeding research, because, mm -hmm. you know, it really should be part and parcel of what we understand. So yeah. that we can offer those benefits to right. anyone and everyone. So, I, you know, I wanted, I know we're, we're really on time. I here, can keep going have, for a little while. It's up to you. Right. Okay. Cause <laughs> I wanted to ask a little bit about the cognitive effects that you saw. That oh, was another yes. one that kind of surprised one me. One of my that favorite was, things. Uh -huh. Is that kind yes. of surprised me there? Um, because you, well, I mean, you could talk about the findings here, yeah, but yeah. the lack of really cognitive effects, but also that stress factor, that kind of the way the monkey, the mother reared, the monkey reared, the way the mother <laughs> reared um, monkeys were stressed during the testing, I thought was just such a fascinating 
concept yeah, of having yeah. overcome something there. So sorry, I'll let yeah, you explain okay. the cognitive testing here. Cause okay. this is a super fun study and one that I was really heartbroken. We couldn't continue when the lab closed down because I had designs on just doing this work forever in subsequent <laughs> birth years. But so again, we looked, we, we designed cognitive tests, which were actually based on tests that I learned and conducted as an undergraduate at University of Washington <laughs> through line. Um, and so we devised a way to test infant monkeys in their home cages in the nursery. It used to be we had to take them out to a new room, conduct the test there, and that required so much habituation. But we developed a cage side testing paradigm. And for the first time ever, we devised a way to be able to administer cognitive tasks to mother-reared infants in those large social groups with the eight to 10 adults. Mm -hmm. um, and essentially, it was a smaller cage inside their huge social run with a little tunnel that only the infant could fit through. I'm here to tell you, once the babies figured out that they could access food rewards that their mother could not take from them, they were all about it. <laughs> <laughs> and they would come in and out and participate all day long. And so then we administered a battery of cognitive tests, primarily looking at executive function, um, ability to switch rules, um, you know, flexibly. And so essentially what we found is that globally, overall, there was no difference um, in terms of rearing condition on, on like overall cognitive development. Uh, this was surprising to us too. We were like, for sure, because no one, A, has ever tested mother-reared infants. So of course we're going to find something different. Nope. Well, it didn't happen. Now, it's true uh, what you said at the beginning um, in the training process, training infants to come in, the mother-reared infants to come into that little um, kind of cage within within the larger social enclosure. They were they were more nervous, um, mm -hmm. and but, but they adapted really relatively quickly. And once they adapted their behavior really was no different than the nursery root infants on during the cognitive test. So if they did appear, you know, stress at the beginning, they were adaptable and they overcame it again, because they were able to get treats at their mouth. <laughs> and so although we found no overall difference, I'll say the data set is incredibly complex. And what we have yet to do as a follow-up is to look at kind of trial by trial and day by day learning and mm -hmm. really, um, zoom in and maybe that is where we would see differences and you know how quickly differently reared infants pick up on these types of tasks or learn to switch the rules whereas you know overall we we're just looking at how many trials did they get correct out of all the possible trials it's just really global averages um, mm -hmm. so that's where we might expect some differences even though we didn't see anything in the global, global. sense do you think that globally because what struck me from it because i too expected <laughs> to see a difference, just yeah. the complex nature, the adult learning, you think about this, but the fact that you do have the nursery reared monkeys in very enriching yes. environments. Oh, is thank that you. Yes, you reminded me of the other point I wanted to make, which was it's, it's entirely likely and possible at least that a reason we don't see a deficit in the nursery monkeys is because of the highly enriched stimulating environment. And so I think, you know, that speaks to a lot of things, one of which is for facilities that do require nursery rearing of monkeys for their research. You know, it seems that they should aim to make the environment as enriching and stimulating as possible to mitigate differences if the sole factor you're looking at for causality is disrupted attachment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it has, it, 
implications for laboratory practices as well. But I would think even thinking about it from like a human perspective of cognitive differences, obviously there's there's genetics that play a yeah. particular role, but you think about, you know, having this enriching environment that mm -hmm. helps us be curious and yeah. creative and explore and you know, it seems like that might have a stronger parallel to our cognitive, not where, you know, social and other right. would be slightly different, but the cognitive component alone, we might be able to mitigate. I mean, we think about Head Start as an example yes. of yes. providing the, you know, more of an enriching environment for kids that may not have it yes. at home. And yes. I know there's debate about how successful that is in different realms and how it's mm -hmm. implemented. And that's a whole other topic. Yeah. But Taking that to think about, you know, what we can provide families with in terms of access to these enriching that, environments for their that's kids. Exactly right. And I think that goes back again to the policy points we are making, which is, you know, what can we do to ensure that all families of all backgrounds and demographics and what have you have at least equitable access to different early stimulating environments. Another way to put it is, you know, high quality education, even at the early years before they're formally in school, it shouldn't be a privilege. It, it should be a right. Everyone should have equal access to it. it should, you know, high quality shouldn't only be for those who can afford it. Yes. Well, you look at places like Finland, where yeah. there is highly enriched early care available yes. to anyone who wants it. And if you choose to stay home, that's available to you as well yeah. with support. And it becomes a choice that yes. people get to make and they don't have to worry about their kids in that regard. It also reminds me just because you're going to start looking at schooling. But yes. I remember years ago, I can't even remember where it was but the whole study of the, the drop the summer drop in schooling mm. and how it, it happens more predominantly in families where the kids can't have these access to summer enriching activities where mm -hmm. it is the ability to go to summer camps the privilege that we have to send some kids off to summer camps and programs maintains right. that academic and then that lag that drop that occurs versus the lag builds up year after year after year to see the type yeah. of cognitive inequality that we can see at the end that has nothing to do with the child's innate capacity, yes, exactly. but has to do with the environment that they're given. The accessibility. Um, exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's, um, yeah. Okay. So I, I, I I'm going to stop because I really <laughs> could just keep going, but I'm just like, I'm sitting Look here with the stress reaction. So much fun. Yeah. I know. I'm like, oh, stress reactivity, stress reactivity. But no, oh, we can. Man. I yeah, know, right? place where my heart lies. <laughs> it's, um, well, I don't know if you saw it, but okay, I am going to go here just very yeah, briefly. Sure. But looking at the <laughs> lack of anxiety in the nursery reared monkeys in, in terms of stress reactivity somewhere, and I can't remember whether it was the cognitive effects or in the HPA access um, mm -hmm. study, but it reminded me of a paper that I read recently, Drs. Wu and Fang, that looked at um, predominantly lower SES income families in terms of emotion regulation and stress mm -hmm. and compared mm -hmm. to parenting styles. And this argument of sometimes the low anxiety emotion regulation may not be adaptive mm. um, is a result of the lack of attachment. There it was linked to attachment, right? Mm -hmm. So the in some cases, you have kids that may have a 
poor attachment, mm -hmm. um, which was examined in some of these groups. And they did show what might be perceived as levels of emotion regulation, but it wasn't an adaptive one because their cortisol was still there was still stressful. Yeah. Look to be not anxious. Yeah what right. was happening. And so I think about that with some of the nursery reared monkeys, when we see some lack of anxiety, is it adaptive mm -hmm. to their environment? Or could it be reflective of this one component you've been able to isolate away? Yeah. Of... Yeah. It's a very, very complex topic. I think one of the first things that came to mind was the fact that whether we're talking about humans or non-human primates, you know, physiological stress does not necessarily equate with behavioral stress. And so there is um, not really strong agreement between what you can measure in hormones versus what you can measure in terms of behavior. And, you know, in monkeys may not show anxiety, but have high cortisol levels, or people may say, no, I don't feel stress, but they have high cortisol <laughs> levels, right? So there's that factor, which I think speaks to another part is that it's context dependent. So what is going on in the environment at that time? And is it something that actually requires uh, or, or in the, for the benefit of the animal or the person would, you know, necessitate a somewhat anxious response, uh, you know, yeah. to be vigilant at that moment? Or is it, is it okay that they're not responding in an anxious way? So it's, it's quite complicated. Um, but what we've found over the years in our animals is that these sort of, in the nursery of monkeys, these sort of excessive stress responses are not um, all day, every day and baseline mm -hmm. conditions when they're in their social groups with their buddies. It's under stressful situations where yeah. these heightened uh, responses come out. Um, so I think it's quite a complex question that, that really, really needs a lot more, more scrutiny and more science, more data. Yeah. And I should say, actually, in um, Dr. Wu's paper, they were under stressful conditions. So they were expecting. Uh -huh. So most kids, you know, in the more secure attachment, we're orienting, we're seeking assistance, yeah. we're doing what we would expect. And that's, yeah, yeah it has to be under those stressful conditions. I'm that's sure right. in times of exploration or enjoyment or play, we don't need to worry no about yeah. what's happening there. That's not a concern. It is when that safety system Mm -hmm. or the fear system is activated that we look at that. But right. I guess it's interesting because even just thinking about attachment and that lack of the attachment figure, when their fear system is activated in the nursery reared infants, mm -hmm. what did they, what is the behavior? Because you think about, mm. you know, the, the proximity seeking to a, that attachment figure, yeah, yeah. they don't have it. So what does it look like for what them? What does it look like? Yeah. So again, um, uh, a bigger answer is depends on the context. By that, I mean, depends on what is the stressor you're imposing. And different labs will do this in different ways. Some, for example, the stressor will be um, introduction to a new animal that they've never seen, right? Um, and for other, you know, there's a lot of different ways to impose a stressor. Mm -hmm. In our facility, um, predominantly, we did temporary separations from either the peers in the case of the nursery reared or the mothers in the case of the mother reared and examine their behaviors in response to these separations and importantly in response to reunion with either the peers or the mothers and depending on the rearing condition you know it, it tended to be that mother reared infants showed the typically expected response of a 
of separation from an attachment figure, you know, distress vocalizations and, and calling out for the mother. Now, these separations were brief, I should say, mm -hmm. they, you know. Um, whereas the nursery infants tended to do things more like huddling alone, um, kind of self-clasping, self-soothing types of behaviors. So they did not necessarily uh, exhibit the behaviors indicating they were seeking out their attachment figure like the mother rear monkeys were. Mm -hmm. And then upon reunion, the tendency is that the mother rear monkeys would show classical expected behaviors like running right to the mother and clinging on. Whereas in some cases, the nursery monkeys might actually show aggression towards their peers before. So a, a really sort of, uh, it, certainly some would cling on to their peers, but others would be hyper aggressive in response. Mm -hmm. Wow. It's just the importance of attachment just comes through yeah. to anyway, like it's just attachment to yes. someone, someone yes. to be there, whether it's a peer, it sounds like in some cases they treat right. the peers as an attachment figure in a certain way. They do. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, as they go. But all right. So out of all of this, what would you say is the biggest take home message for people when they're applying what they learn from your research to human populations? Well, I think I'm going to sound a little bit like a broken record, but I'm just going to take this opportunity to reinforce the notion that children not only need, but all children deserve uh, a loving, secure environment to grow up in. And um, the research that I'm doing, I'm, I'm hoping to identify specific mechanisms, biological mechanisms that underlie the benefits of these secure attachments as as but one way to treat children who don't have secure attachments, but that ultimately the fix is uh, is prevention and in terms of the policies that we've discussed. Yeah, exactly. But I do think it is important to think about intervention because sometimes things happen, like we talked For about sure. death of a parent that we cannot Absolutely. control that, yeah, unfortunately right. can't and prevent. So if and when we can get to the point where we can identify, I don't know, say, um, a genetic predisposition or certain types of uh, cellular functioning that go awry after a, a loss of an attachment figure, then we can design more effective treatments um, in the cases where, where they are needed. Absolutely. So just to end up, I know you already mentioned you are, are venturing into the world of schooling environments and yes. yes. all of this. So is that the research you have ongoing now? What is your I'm research that you're on now? So excited because <laughs> just on Friday, I got an email from a collaborator that is like propelling this forward. Now in the age of COVID, this had to be suspended. We were getting ready uh, at the start of this current school year, 2020 to 21, to launch this research and then all the schools closed. So <laughs> But it's looking like it's up and uh, going to be up and running again. And so this is a blend of personal and professional. My professional interests are in early life environments, right? And how those shape lifelong outcomes. The personal comes in because my husband is a public Montessori teacher here in New Haven. And he has been for many years. And um, our kids went to public Montessori as, you know, through pre-K, kindergarten, first grade. And... Um, it kind of struck me one day that, you know, Montessori, for those who don't know, is very different than traditional schooling, at least here in the States. It's very much student-focused uh, types of learning and modeling of lessons and um, and student-focused environments, so much so that sometimes when you go into a Montessori classroom, you can't even tell where the teacher is because they're so immersed. It's not the didactic, stand up in front of the classroom, teacher-focused learning. So it really struck me. I was like, huh. You know, all else being equal, it's it really seems to me to be the case that 
the type of school environment a child is in has to matter in some way. And mm -hmm. so what we're going to do, there are some schools up in Hartford, Connecticut, where in one building, they have a sort of a traditional, more traditional public school and a public Montessori school. And entry is via lottery. So it's about as close to randomized control trial as you can get. Mm -hmm. So our idea here, which we're hoping to get started now next school year, is to take hair samples from students grades, I think first through eighth grade, um, at three points across the school year and start answering simple questions like one, does the school environment, all else being equal, the teach the classroom environment, impact long-term quote unquote stress functioning, right? And then um, a, a follow-up question would be, does the long-term stress functioning equate at all with their social emotional learning and their academic outcomes? Mm -hmm. So that is where we're headed and I'm so excited to get going. I, you know, one of the things about the Montessori school too, just to add for people that don't know, is they have multi-age groups. Yes. Because yes, it's not a complex learning environment. <laughs> exactly. It is not just one yes. set of peers, everyone on the same page, which is something I, I, um, I, I really husband, struggle with. My husband teaches grades four to six. He's upper elementary teacher and he'll have a math lesson comprised of, depending on what it is, sixth graders down to fourth graders. So yeah. Yeah. That's it's, right. Yeah. And I always love it because I sometimes hear people say, well, you can't ask teachers to teach multiple grade levels. I'm like, well, they seem to be able to do it just fine over they there. Sure so I, I fourth through sixth grade for me, it wasn't Montessori, but it was in my public elementary school. And it was a program where the teacher had multiple grade levels. So mm -hmm. eh, it's possible. It, was, <laughs> it is. Yeah. My husband grew up in a small town. And similarly, he had two yeah. groups. He was K to three, I think, and mm -hmm. four to six. He go. also got the benefit of being taught by his grandmother and his aunt in each yes. of those things. So it was really small town where yeah. it was all together. But yeah, I think that's really interesting. I'm fascinated because yeah. the education system is something I'm, I mean, we homeschool actually as mm -hmm. part and it's because um, we don't have access to the kind of alternative educations that yeah. I would want yeah. for my daughter both you know mm. forest school systems Montessori systems were just in an area where that doesn't exist and abundant. so yeah. yeah so it's something that fascinates me because I would love to see public schools offer these kind I'm glad you have yeah, a public yeah. Montessori option that's yes. something else up yes. here that I don't think exists at all it's if you want Montessori it's private it's private yeah and that's it yeah which again and Privileged. overwhelmingly, that's the case in the U.S. There are definitely more uh, private than public, but uh, public Montessori is gaining traction along with Which some other um, models of, of education. Yeah. Which is good. Well, I am very excited to hear about that mm -hmm. one. I hope the 2021 school year doesn't uh, throw it off course. Again. I hope so too. <laughs> <laughs> right? Just, well, and if not, you can now study the effects of online learning yes. for everyone because I have a doing. feeling that's going to have a different effect. And, you know, I was struck when you said, uh, you know, people are saying well, teachers can't teach multiple grades. I think COVID has shown us teachers can do pretty much anything. Right. And they are our heroes who deserve all the compensation in the world. Yeah. Well, it's funny because <laughs> I'm about to say, I've never heard a teacher say they couldn't do it. Yeah, so exactly. I'm just kind of wondering mm. where this comes from yes, because exactly. I'm not listening to any teacher say, oh, no, no, I can't do that. I'm sorry. I must only do grade four yeah, and that yeah, is it. Yeah. I cannot touch another year. Yeah. I, so, but it seems others have this idea that no, we can't, we can't change things up to have that. That's yeah, impossible. Well, we can't. Not so, how it's been. 
Right, exactly. Although, actually, arguably, going back long enough, it is how it was. You think about the one-room schoolhouse, yeah, and yeah. the multiple years of you know the teacher teaching everyone everything yep. for more than just three years. So yeah. I feel like you know, it's, it's um, not how it's been for those in the memory of those who are in charge of it. <laughs> yes, exactly. They had their memory. I did it this way. Yeah. This worked for me. So therefore <laughs> it should work for everyone else. I know it's, um, it's there. Well, I am fascinated to hear that. And in terms of people finding your work, I'm going to share all the links to your site, your lab, Please everything do. like yes. that. And, um, do. and I'm happy to take it. You know, if anybody has follow-up questions, my email is on there too. So they can definitely reach out. Perfect. All right. Well, thank you so much once oh. again for being here. This is so interesting. And I'm so glad you're doing this work and making it so clear thank that, you. you know, there is just going back to what we said at the beginning about the ethics. And it is, yes. there has to be a benefit to this. And there is even to the animals in many ways, because of already yeah. what you highlighted certain ways that this comes out for nursery reared infants, zoo infants, you know, a, a monkeys that you're yeah. able to actually study a population that derives them benefits as well. Um, yeah. And do it in a way that, as we said, you know, look at the cognitive data, you've given them an incredibly enriching environment, which a yeah. lot of kids who don't have that attachment don't get the benefit of that either. That's right. So we really do get to see and just highlighting that benefit might be really helpful for a lot of families to understand that that enriching environment shouldn't have to be up to them that we can provide Absolute, it at a policy absolutely. level. So. Absolutely. Well, it was, the pleasure was all mine. I thank you so much for having me. That's it for this week. I hope you enjoyed listening to that conversation at least nearly as much as I enjoyed having it. Join me next week as I tackle the topic of why male infant circumcision should be a human rights issue. If you've listened to EP for a while, you know that this is something near and dear to my heart. And I'm joined for two episodes with Brian Earp of Yale University, an outspoken critic who tackles the issue from a moral and ethical standpoint. We start next week by talking about the idea of benefits versus risks and how this relates to a child's right to bodily autonomy. It's an important conversation that we need to have more of in North American culture. So I hope you will turn in. Until then, stay safe and happy parenting.